listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, Paula and I would like to thank all of you for your continued support. If you are new to our podcast, the best ways to support us is to tell a family member or a friend. Leave a five-star review, and also consider becoming a Patreon member by going to patreon.com slash ohiomysteries. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Stevie Utter, and with us as always is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal writing stories just like this, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. World War II stories are among my favorites to share. Not because I'm a fan of war, of course. I'd be quite happy to live in a world where there are no war stories to tell. But World War II was also an era that brought out the best in people. Courage, a will to do more and be more than we ever thought possible and forgiveness. In a time of war, there is so much need for reconciliation. Tonight's tale is one I learned about almost 20 years ago, and it remains one of the favorite stories of my career at the Beacon Journal because of how completely unlikely it was. It's about an Akron fighter pilot who was shot down over Germany during the war, captured by the local militia, and protected by hospital staff from the infamous German SS as they treated his serious burns. But here's the most unlikely twist of all, that a little German boy whose parents had been killed by American bombers would one day seek out both the Akron pilot and his German adversary and turn the three of them into friends. This is the story of Jim Heckman of Akron, his World War II nemesis, Carl Besson, and the little self-appointed German peacemaker, Walter Hassenflug. March the 31st, 1945, was a Saturday, the day before Easter, and it was the waning days of World War II. It was obvious to everyone the Allies were going to win, and sure enough, VE Day, Victory in Europe, will come in about five more weeks on May the 8th. But that didn't matter on March the 31st. On March the 31st, the war still needed to be won. And that's why 2nd Lieutenant Jim Heckman slipped into his tight-fitting P-47 Thunderbolt in the darkness of the early morning, with sunrise still 90 minutes away. He lifted off from a French airfield. Heckman, a 21-year-old who had grown up in Akron dreaming of flying, served with the 362nd Fighter Group, and their job was to disrupt German supply lines. 
Heckman had already made 55 missions, strafing troops, tanks, and trains. It was all pretty routine at this point. To be honest, he kind of felt invincible up there. About a half hour into his flight, Heckman and six other flyers reached their destination, a train yard near Bad Hersfeld, Germany. They spotted their target, a locomotive, and they dive-bombed it, watching for the puff of steam that would signal the train's engine had been disabled. But this day, there was a surprise in store. From the east came a pair of German long-nosed fighter planes. Heckman never even saw them. He only knew of their existence because a shell ripped through the left side of his plane and exploded into the instrument panel. Bandits in the area, he shouted into his radio as fire surrounded him. Then he dragged himself over the ragged edge of his blazing cockpit, fell into the air, and deployed his parachute. As he floated to the ground, dazed and in pain, he watched his buddies bring down both German planes, but they were helpless to do anything for him. Where he was going, they could not follow. By the time Heckman's parachute reached the ground, a pair of old men who served with the local militia were there to meet him, rifles in hand. But they took one look at the second and third degree burns on their prisoner and returned their rifles to their shoulders. This guy was not going to be giving them any trouble. The two men marched Heckman to the center of the small farming village of Maklos, where residents were standing outside waiting to see who fell out of the sky. Heckman saw two women begin weeping when they saw him. He was in a lot of pain, and apparently the burns looked as bad as they felt. But he would get no sympathy from the town's mayor. Canadian? the mayor asked in his thick accent. Heckman said no. Englander, the mayor asked. Heckman shook his head. American, he said. Heckman nodded. The mayor spat in his face. The foot march continued as his captors guided him further into the town, and Heckman now believed he was being taken to his death. He could see a tall wooden post down the street. Unable to understand German, he could only surmise the angry words from the mayor were in order to take him to the post to be shot. But fear turned to relief as he was marched past the post and to the home of a young nurse. The nurse helped him into her living room, and Heckman began to shiver violently. The nurse sprinkled his wounds with sulfa powder and covered him with a dozen blankets. It was a short reprieve. As soon as his quivering stopped, his captors lifted him to his feet, and off they went again, this time a six-mile hike to a field hospital. The captors ordered a man to help Heckman walk. The man spoke French, which Heckman had taken in high school, he understood enough to know that the man was a Polish prisoner of war, 
But after that, there was no real effort at communication. Every step was agony, and it was all he could do to keep going. At the field hospital, a doctor gave Heckman a shot of morphine, and he passed out. When he woke up, his eyes had been completely covered in bandages, but he could tell he was in the back of a truck, and as he bounced around, completely blinded, he could hear the cannon fire of P-47s. He wondered if his buddies were unwittingly firing on his ambulance, but they weren't, and soon he arrived in the city of Castle. The week that followed was one of necessary torture. His bandages had to be soaked off his bloody hands and face, and Heckman watched as a doctor cut away his dead skin. Heckman wondered if his captors were enjoying his pain. After all, he hadn't been offered so much as an aspirin to ease it. But to the contrary, he soon learned that the hospital staff was actually protecting him. A German SS military office was in the vicinity, and the hospital deliberately did not inform them that they had an injured American soldier on the premises. Indeed, each time P-47s flew over the town and patients and staff ran for cover in the basement, a wounded German soldier helped Heckman to safety. On April the 7th, eight days after he was shot down, a pair of German officers walked into Heckman's hospital room and lay their guns across his body. They had just learned U.S. troops had crossed into the city of Kassel. The officers were surrendering. Heckman looked at his useless, heavily bandaged arms and hands and thought, how surreal is this? I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. The truth is, Heckman was extremely lucky to fall under the care of some kind German souls because to the general public, Allied airmen were reviled. German citizens saw them as airborne snipers, just as likely to take out a farmer's hay wagon as a German tank. And the month of March had been the worst yet. Pilots were doing round-the-clock sorties to clear the way for ground troops that were advancing through Germany. 
The nerves of local villagers were completely frayed. One such villager was a 12-year-old boy named Walter Hassenflug. He had more reason than most to hate Allied fighter pilots. That made him an orphan. A few months before Heckman was shot down, Walter had been living with his parents in a red-brick apartment building just outside Bad Hersfeld, a 1,200-year-old city with a population of 13,000. Walter was a good student and a good German, as expected of anyone his age. He'd been enrolled in the state organization called Hitler Youth since the age of 10. In addition to studying, he marched, did fitness training, collected scrap metal for the war effort, and helped wounded at the local hospital. And then the life he knew ended. On November the 21st, 1944, a dozen B-17 bombers flew overhead. He and his father watched them from their doorway when they saw a smoke signal fall not far from where they were standing. They knew enough to know such signals are used to mark targets for the bombers. The B-17s had come to take out Bod Harrisfeld's railway system, but they missed by half a mile. Walter's father flung himself over his son as two bombs fell directly on the apartment building, leveling it. Walter's father was killed. His mother, still inside the building, was obliterated. But Walter's father's body had done its job. Walter was pulled from beneath him, unconscious but alive. He spent the next 12 weeks in the hospital while his broken frame mended. It took a month for the hospital staff to finally tell him his parents were dead. The family of a local doctor took Walter in and cared for him for a time, but when it was clear the Allies were going to be bombing Bad Harrisfield for the foreseeable future, they moved him out of the city to Friedlos, where a relative lived. And that's where Walter was on March the 31st, 1945. As Heckman parachuted from the wreckage of his airplane, Walter was huddled in a basement a few miles away, waiting for the bombs to stop. The war ended in the city of Friedlos the very next day. Easter Sunday dawned with the sight of American troops marching into the city. Germany wouldn't surrender for another 38 days, but for Walter, the war was over. Jim Heckman returned to Akron after the war and began a series of operations to restore his badly burned skin. For 12-year-old Walter, it was also a time of healing. His hatred of Americans melted in the presence of troops who passed out chocolate bars to German youngsters and let Walter practice his English on them. Walter grew up. He married got a job at a law and order office in his hometown, and the war became a memory. In 
Nearly 40 years passed, and then Walter felt compelled to do something rather astonishing. He began researching the spectacular aerial battles that had taken place in his region. He found records of them, dates, names, outcomes. He began interviewing eyewitnesses and taking photos of crash sites. He wasn't exactly sure what he was going to do with all of this, not at first, but then he found an address of a U.S. military pilot who had been involved in one of the crashes he had researched. Was the guy still alive? Walter wrote to him. He was alive. He lived in California, and the two became pen pals. So Walter started reaching out to more pilots, dozens of them, British, American, German. In a way, he had become their personal historian. It took Walter about two years to find all the pieces of the puzzle relating to the aerial fight that had brought Jim Heckman down, which included the aftermath of his march through the village and his stay at the hospital. Then, When he was confident he had the whole story, he did the unthinkable. He reached out to Jim Heckman and to the German pilot who had shot him down. One day in 1988, Heckman's phone rang. He lived in Akron's Goodyear Heights neighborhood, where he worked as a real estate broker and raised three daughters with his wife Esther. On the other end of the phone was the secretary of his Veterans Association. Hey, she said, some guy in Germany wants to talk to you. He knows who shot you out of the sky that day in 1945. He wants to know if you guys would like to talk to each other. Heckman was stunned. Contrary to what some might think, he had never given a thought to who his attacker was. Pilots expect their enemies to remain nameless and faceless. And yet, Heckman didn't hesitate. He was not only interested in communicating with a German pilot, but he was intrigued about who this peacemaker was. Heckman grabbed a pen and quickly sent off a letter. First, Heckman and Walter shared their stories with each other. Then, Heckman wrote the man who had nearly killed him, Cadet Senior Grade Carl Besson. For the first time, Heckman got to see that air battle through the eyes of the enemy. Besson told him that after he fired the shot that hit Heckman, his guns jammed. Determined to make sure his target went down, he had actually rammed the tail of Heckman's plane to finish the job something Heckman had no memory of. He was rather occupied trying to get out of the burning plane. Besson said he was then hit by one of the American planes, bailed from his own, hitting his head and arm on the tail of his plane, and that he was rescued on the ground, treated by a Red Cross nurse, and joined his unit as they were retreating. After the war, The 22-year-old Besson was in the same boat as all the German men, struggling to find work in the war-ravaged country. 
He eventually landed a job in textile exports. He married, had a daughter, and retired from an administrative job with the German army. After Walter Hassenflug found him, Besson paid a visit to the village that he had parachuted into and spoke with residents who remembered him. Besson wrote about this experience to Heckman in America. After more than 43 years, the past finally caught up with me, he wrote. I had never thought this possible. It was a strange feeling after such a long time to be reminded of the rough days of the past. I am really glad that both of us survived. Over the next decade, Besson and Heckman became pen pals. They exchanged vacation postcards and Christmas greetings. They hoped to meet in person, and Heckman even made plans for a trip to Germany so he and Besson could go together to the dedication of a German-American memorial that their peacemaker, Walter Hassenflug, had initiated. But then Heckman's daughter gave birth to his first grandchild in London, and Heckman had to change his destination. The promise of next year became a frequent refrain until finally next year was too late. A Christmas card sent to Besson came back in the mail undelivered. He had died. But it wasn't too late to meet Walter Hassenflug. The little 12-year-old orphan was now 72 years old. Jim Heckman was 81. 2005 was going to be the 60th anniversary of the day he was shot down. And it was a good reason to finally make it happen. In the summer of 2005, Heckman flew to Germany. His entire family joined him. His daughters, Sue Smith from Akron, Patrice Vossler from Virginia, and Janet Heckman in London, as well as his sons-in-law and all five of his grandchildren. Heckman exchanged warm hugs with Walter. Their 17-year-old friendship of words, finally now a friendship in the flesh. Then the pair made their way to Maklos, the village that received that unexpected visitor from the sky so many years ago. They knew he was coming. They had spent weeks preparing for him. Upon his arrival, a German woman rushed forward and laid a white crocheted dress in Heckman's arms. Heckman turned to his translator for an explanation of the mysterious gift. The silk dress, as it turned out, was made from the cords of the parachute that had carried Heckman into her village. He also met the daughter of Anna Schmidt, the nurse who had treated his wounds in her home, and he walked through the house where she had sprinkled his burns with sulfa powder and covered him in blankets. It was there that a man greeted him by cupping Heckman's head in his hands. The translator explained that the man was a boy in Anna's house that day, 
and remembered Heckman's face being charred black. He helped hold Heckman's head while Anna washed it. That afternoon, 70 residents joined Heckman and his family at a community dinner where they revealed the coup de grace, a portion of the tale of Heckman's crashed thunderbolt. A local doctor, Kurt Schreiner, explained his brother had found the four-foot-long mangled piece of metal during a walk in 1963. Heckman was able to have it shipped home. Jim Heckman died five years after that visit to Germany. He was 86. He passed away on March the 31st, 65 years to the very day he was shot down. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.